Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today, Dr. Janet Delane joins the show for a conversation about Roman apartments in ancient Ostia. And for the most part, we're going to focus the conversation in on the 2nd century CE, so the 100s CE. Dr. Delane is a retired associate professor in Roman archaeology in the Faculty of Classics at the University of Oxford, based in the UK. She is also an emeritus fellow at Wolfson College, Oxford, also based in the UK. She has over 20 years of archaeological experience at Ostia. And as examples of some of her publications, she has authored articles in the following two books. A Companion to Roman Italy, which was published by Wiley Blackwell, and Contested Spaces, Houses and Temples in Roman Antiquity in the New Testament, which was published by Moore Seebeck. And Dr. Delane joins the show today from the UK. Welcome to the show, Janet. Hello. Good to connect with you today, Janet. So to create sufficient background and context, and then we'll work our way into the details, in the context of the ancient period, what was Ostia? So Ostia was the port city of ancient Rome. According to the legends, it was founded very early in Rome's history, but the settlement that we know it, at what was the mouth of the Tiber, dates to more or less the end of the 4th century BCE. It became, uh, it was set up as a military colony to defend the mouth of the Tiber, but it rapidly became both a naval base and also um, an entrepot. So it's, it's the main commercial port of Rome. By the, so in the second century CE, a large harbour was built to the north, which is called Portus, but after mainland the main city port for, for ancient Rome. What was it about the 200s? You had told me that for the most part, your, your research focused on the 200s, right? Did I get that right? Actually, it's the second century, so the 100s. Okay, all right. So I'll make sure that um, in the introduction that everyone's going to hear <laughs> that, it's, that it says that, so the 100s. So, okay, so we're talking for the most part today, the, the second century CE, right? All right, all right, um, good, okay. So, so what, what is it about, uh, does it have to do with uh, Rome building that new, I believe you said that new location to, to the north? Can you, can you share what it is about this particular period um, that gave you the evidence and other scholars evidence to understand more about this topic, uh, apartments in, in the second century CE? As Rome itself expanded, um, the commercial side of things got much larger, quite, quite obviously. And Austria being on a, the mouth of the Tiber meant that it was restricted to what shipping could actually move up and down the river. And the harbour at Austria itself is very limited. So starting under the Emperor Claudius in the middle of the first century CE, and then expanded under the Emperor Trajan at the very beginning of the second century CE, 
Standard Harbour was built to the north of Porter. And at that point, between those two points and thereafter, we seem to get an expansion of the city of Ostia itself. At the same time, there were a lot of problems in that same period with flooding. So a lot of Ostia is rebuilt at a higher level, just in this period that we're talking about. Now, with the increase in commercial activity and prosperity, you get an increase in population. And it's the increase in population, I think, that really drives the need for um, these multi-story apartment blocks, which is the topic today. And if somebody goes to Ostia today, what would they see? And what I'm partly getting at with that question as well is not every location archaeologists and other scholars can easily excavate for for instance what so if someone goes to ostia today what do they see and what is it about ostia that has given sounds like quite a bit of evidence to have this kind of constructive conversation uh today ostia as we say today as an archaeological site is about the size of though very few people seem to uh, realize this. And because of two things, it is very well preserved. So to begin with, a lot of the rebuilding of Austrian second century city is in Roman concrete. So very strong um, structures, which are able to withstand a lot of the, the processes of time, but also Austin was completely abandoned from the 7th century AD. It became a millennial swamp. It was only really started to be cleared and excavated in the 19th century. So we have still remaining structures with stairs which will take you up to the equivalent of the second floor. Um, the, uh, yeah, okay, in England we worked sort of ground floor, first floor, second floor. So to, the, to our second and it, it is a, it's an amazing site. I mean, I, I really have to give it a plug because it is um, very easy to get to from Rome. It's easy to get to from the Rome's airport at Fiumicino. And it is such an amazing place. There's this um, street of um, these apartment buildings and major public buildings as well. I recommend a visit. Yeah, and it's a, uh, it's a, it's a subtle but dis distinct point. Yeah, you're pointing out the, the difference between, as an example, in no North America, in a place like Canada or the U.S., the, the, the first floor they call basically the, the ground floor, but then in most parts of Europe, that's, uh, or rather, let me, let me say that again, in, in a place like Canada or the U.S., they call that the first floor, and then, then the next floor up, they call it the second floor, and then, then in most parts of Europe, the, the first floor is considered uh, uh, the ground floor, zero, and then the next floor up becomes the first. Is that what you're pointing out? Yes, that is correct, yeah. yes. Yeah, okay. And so all sorts of confusion. It's this, and it's the, same, uh, it's the same, same, same way that model that you just described there in Tunisia. So the, in Tunisia, when you enter a building, the first, first floor is the zero, and then the next floor up is the the first floor, and I've I've noticed that in places like like Spain and like you said in the UK and and Greece, uh, etc. 
Um, okay, and I, so I want to I want to I want to clarify and emphasize this point then um, because I think it's it it, it helps um, with uh, context for this conversation. So for the most part, Ostia, are you saying Ostia as a port and urban center um, was essentially abandoned? It 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 it's it's use uh, ceased as of the second century. No, the 7th. Ah, okay. I didn't hear that correctly. Okay. Thank, thank you. 7th century. Okay. I'm glad I asked that. Okay. So, how, okay, so, so we're talking about the, 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 the uh, 2nd century CE for the most part today. So, and, and a, a, apartments. So, what's your definition of an apartment building how do you define it for the sake of this conversation right um i would say we're talking about generally about buildings which have a multiple units of residence and usually also commercial structures commercial structures on the ground floor and multiple units of residence within a single construction unit. So it's very much like what you would see in in Italy, where you have, even today, you have shops on the ground floor, then you have a door which leads you to an upper floor, which has uh, a number of separate apartments on different floors. Sometimes um, some of them have a mixture of residential and commercial on the ground floor. Rarely are they purely residential on the ground floor. So the opposite to this is a single family residential unit, sort of a, a, an independent house, which also gets an Austria, but they are far fewer than these multi-optional, uh, multi-apartment buildings. And how many buildings approximately in the century that we're speaking about would have existed in Ostia? Well, that's a bit hard to say because we don't have all of it excavated. Um, but something, it's hard to put a number on them. So, but you could say that maybe two-thirds to, between a half and two-thirds of all structures would have been these combined commercial residential units. In terms of, of number of buildings, in terms of area, maybe about half because you have to take out all the public buildings. There are um, um, there are something like twenty bath buildings, um, and there are a lot of warehouses which also occupy quite a lot of the area. But the dominant form of domestic uh, residential architecture is the apartment building. So when you think about um, a typical apartment building that that you've examined, Janet, what would be the what what would have been the number of floors like a typical one? What would have been, what would have been the number of floors and within within the building the the to total number of units? And you can either break that down total or number of units per floor, whatever you think is best to to describe that. To talk about a typical one because they are all 
clearly quite different. But the, the one that I would use as an example is the so-called um, House of Diana, the Casa di Diana. And on the ground floor, that has um, shot stroke workshops on the two streets, facing the two streets, it's on a corner, with an entrance that leads into an inner courtyard. And off the inner courtyard is a communal latrine. In the courtyard, there's a, a communal fountain for the system for, for water. And possibly one um, unit, a residential unit, it's a bit difficult to see because of later alterations. So the commercial units all have an integral upper floor. So they're going to be not just a shop or workshop, but also have residential area above it. And then on the the first floor, there are remember, there are about five small apartments. So these five apartments were all of two to four rooms each. And then there's what I can only describe as a type of pensione or hostel, which has um, five very small rooms, just with a bed and a, and a bedside table in the middle terms, uh, and a common room, all part of a single unit. What we don't know is what happens above this. But many of them would have had um, multiple repeated units on upper floors. So if you have three apartments on the ground floor, you might have three apartments on the one above and three above that. But we generally don't know anything about the uppermost floors. Because the, mat the materials, it just hasn't survived, yeah, those floors? Okay. What do you, with that specific building, uh, do, do you have a notion of, of how many floors it probably was? There's at least one more. Um, I see no reason from the nature of the construction why there can't have been at least one more above that. We do have regulations um, both under the Emperor hey, um, Augustus and the Emperor Trajan, which seem to have set the limits, the height limits of buildings, at least in the city of Rome. And under under Trajan, it was 60 Roman feet, and that would give you about five stories. So we wouldn't expect anything much above that. Okay. And you'd mentioned there was a work, workshop on the main floor in the example that you provided. Uh, what and you might have you might have said it, but I didn't I didn't I didn't hear it fully. Do, do, do scholars know what kind of workshop that was? We have most cases absolutely no idea. Um, Austria had a very slow decay. A lot of buildings were abandoned, and they don't really leave any trace. Sometimes we can tell. Um, there may have been, say, water basins in there that suggest that it was 
some form of activity that required water, and maybe metal working or um, other things that I know. Um, there was certainly some were um, bars or that kind of thing. But really, it's it's one of the great pities. Unlike Pompeii, where everything stopped in an instant, Austria had a very slow pace. And that makes it hard to pin down functions. We don't even know most of the time whether these were purely retail shops or whether they were also workshops. And you have to imagine a, a mixture of the two. The ones we can identify that are some uh, followers and dry cleaners, and there are some bakeries, which we can identify from the, um, the different types of structures that these left behind, but generally speaking, we have no idea. Is it known how people would have accessed the units on the higher floors beyond the, 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 the ground floor? Yes, we have many, many examples of staircases. Indeed, um, there are examples of apartments blocks where there are just commercial units on the round floor and then there's a single door with a staircase and the door itself is decorated as if to say that the apartments above have got some kind of a siege or status. Is it, what's common, is it a single door that leads to a staircase that leads to access to multiple units or are there staircases associated to and a door associated to each unit no the staircases usually lead to corridors it may be um depending on the, the organization and the, there are various ways these structures are organized you can either end up with a a long rectangular block where the apartments are accessed from a corridor, so you've got several apartments along the corridor, which is reached from the staircase. Or, as in the case of the House of Diana, they're organised around an interior courtyard. And in that case, they're probably on, there's two staircases leading to different parts of the, um, of the upstairs. I'm curious. Staircases are a really important feature of the architecture. Okay. I'm curious about the name, and I know there's a lot of different buildings that would have been here in this period of time, um, but I am curious, do you know where the name House of Diana comes from? Why that oh, particular yes, it's name? simple. There's a terracotta relief of the goddess Diana Strabartimus in the courtyard. All of these names are modern. We have no idea what any of them were called in antiquity. Okay. So you mentioned a little bit about what a, a unit would look like. I want to zoom in a, a bit on that a residential unit. So so for the most part, one that would be above the, the, the ground floor. Um, can you give uh, a, a typical example, if there's a typical one, if not, can you give an example um, of what a unit, a, a residential only unit would be comprised of in terms of the, 
the number of rooms and what the utility typically would be for each of those rooms. Okay, so um, there is a particular form of apartment called the mediana apartment, incorrectly, but that's what we call it, which is typical of Austria and represents, I think, the upper end of the housing market for people who don't live in a, a big house. And these generally have um, a, a corridor or a wide, or a wide, a wide corridor or a narrow hall from which all the other rooms open. And it will, they will have a large reception room and a smaller reception room and anywhere between two and four um, what are probably bedrooms isn't quite right because think more of, of the sort of you know student bed, bedroom study day room anything you want to do with it so those are those are quite things are very typical of Austria and they would usually have a kitchen and a latrine as well so was there um were there were there bedrooms at at all? Is this a case where people actually slept in bedrooms, or were they using the common areas to sleep? No, they, there are these individual rooms in these apartments, which are often called bedrooms. But I think Roman life is more fluid than that, so they were your own private space, shall we say, rather than just for sleeping. But they would be where you slept. So you have a communal, this sort of wide corridor, narrow hall type room, which seems to be the communal space. Then there are a big reception room, a smaller reception room. We say reception room because we don't actually know what happened, but you could tell from the decoration and the fact that there are doors are wider, that these are rooms where you would entertain people. Um, and then you have usually uh, very close together because of um, the way Romans did these things, the, the kitchen and the toilets are pretty much in the same area. Indeed, sometimes they open off each other. Okay, and the latrine is, is uh, the, the toilet, like the bathroom area, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, and, it, and it's come up in different episodes in different um, regions. The, the concept in history of, um, and I th and I think probably still occurs in mo modern days, but this this podcast um, focuses on history is the concept of family sleeping in this in the same same room and and there being flexibility over the different uses of the room. Um, so so is it is there any sense? Do scholars know what the average size of a family would have been in this period of time, and and is it thought that families would have all slept together in the same same room? This is a really difficult question to answer, particularly for Austria, because Austria isn't a kind of normal town. It's a port city, so it has a very large transient population. Um, we know that there are traders, in particular merchants, as well as the seamen from 
all around the Mediterranean, particularly from North Africa. And some of these large apartments, these large medianum apartments, we think are possibly, um, as it were, the summer residences of these uh, traders who were wealthy people, so they're not their main homes, and they may never have brought their families with them. They would have brought their staff, perhaps, um, but we can't, we can't lose them. And we, one of the things we, we can deduce is that most of these would have been rental properties. So it could be rented, um, an apartment like I was describing, with two reception rooms and say three bedrooms, personal rooms, could be rented by a single family. It could be rented by um, a businessman, a merchant, or his, himself and his, his staff. And one of the reception rooms sometimes opens into uh, a bedroom. So that could have been for the, as it were, the most important person in the house. They could also have been rented by several unrelated individuals. And they could have been rented uh, by the room. So you could have everything from a whole family living in, I think, one, you know, each of the so-called bedrooms of these, these apartments down to, or up to, um, just I don't know, half a dozen people. And we simply don't know. We just don't have the evidence. You got to my owner or renter, um, if, if either, which one was prevalent in this, um, in this, in this community, in your response there, that's where I was going next with, uh, with a question, Janet. Um, is anything known? Did you? Is there anything in the records about the the types of owners? Is there any? If there is stuff in the records, um, is there any any trends that you saw about um, the the type of owner that would own units for the sake of renting? Uh, like, uh, were they from Ostia or were they from a different place, like like Rome, and uh, they just they they owned additional properties? Anything in the records about that? We simply don't know. Um, we. We have a bit of um, insight into the general Roman mentality from the Roman um, politician Cicero, who had this great correspondence he's writing in the middle of the first century BCE, where he talks about the rental apartments that he owns. And there are other sources um, from the middle of the first century CE, from um, Seneca, for example, who was the tutor to him for Nero, talking about, you know, they're, they're weighing up whether it's better to build or own properties for renting out or land, because the dangers of owning rental properties is, of course, that it could collapse or it could catch fire and you lose all of your... Um, but the basic Roman law is that if you own the piece of land, you own everything above it. So if you build a five-story apartment block, even if you lived in one of those apartments, everybody else in that block is renting from you. Now, they could be family members. They could be uh, slaves or free slaves. So it could be part of a wider um, family unit in the, in the Roman sense, which includes all your slaves and your, and your dependents. Um, but we don't have any way of knowing. Not for us yet. For Austria, our records are the site itself, 
and inscriptions, and they tend not to tell you about things like that. Okay. What were the main features that the bathrooms had? Um, usually you simply have a trench with a seat over it, and that's your toilet. That's it. There is one um, apartment block, which some people think is a hotel, but I disagree, where there is a room next to um, the kitchen and the toilet, which has a waterproof floor which slopes towards the, the toilet. And I think that's probably was the place for having a, a metal bathtub. So you'd heat the water in the kitchen and you could um, empty the water from the from the bathtub onto the floor and it would run into the to clean the, the, the latrine, the toilet top. But that sort of evidence is rarely preserved. So typical bathrooms, how would they, uh, the inhabitants, how would they re remove or have excre excrements removed from the unit? Well, it's, it's all attached to a sewage system. Okay. Okay. And so then that would go from the unit, somewhat like modern day times, and it would, it would, um, would go to the ground. Down, yeah, down five and they would. Okay. How did they get water into the units? That's that's a much debated question. Again, because we um, we have very very limited evidence. There's certainly these big medium apartments at the ground floor. Many of them, I think, would have had pipe water. The difficulty is, of course, that the pipes were made of lead, and lead is very valuable. So as the city decayed and was abandoned, all the, the lead piping was stripped out. So we often have to work on just the holes left in the walls for when the water came in. There are arguments to say that some of the water could have got at least to the first floor, but possibly not beyond that. Otherwise, um, there were public fountains. You could go and fetch the water. There are not as many of them as at Pompeii, which suggests that having a water supply, as in the house of Diana, so the water would be supplied to a system, and you'd go to the communal system and, and fetch your water. Okay. So uh, there's more consensus that water could get to the first floor, up to the first floor, but there's not consensus that water could get past the first floor and that, that kind of more automated pro process. Um, not everybody would agree that it goes to the first floor either. The, the main evidence is the is the um, the overflow that you can see the build up of lime from the first floors. But you could get that, I suppose, if you carried the water upstairs yourself. It's a it's a, one of these archaeological arguments that that you know people will never agree on, <laughs> which happens to us all the time. The uh, kit kitchen, did it have a sink and did it have the utility to drain water out of the unit? Um, most of the kitchens are very poorly preserved. 
And so it's very hard to say, indeed, we only identify them um, through, usually through the range. So if you think of a Pompeian kitchen, where you have a, a masonry table, basically built against the wall, usually supported on a couple of arched openings, where you keep the fuel, and you build little fires on top of it, so you don't have a, it's not like our cookers, um, you build a, a small fire with a, a trivet or a support over it and you put your pots and one more drop of things on it, or you build um, a fire and, and, and put a, a cauldron or something directly into the place. The sad story is that when the, um, the big push at Ostia for excavation was in the 1930s and the early 40s as part of the fascist regime desire to create uh, a Roman imperial version of Pompeii as, as part of the showcase of the new um, Italian Empire, the third Rome of Mussolini. And they removed everything they felt was um, not very enlightening. And so they actually filled in the trains, the toilets, and removed the evidence for kitchens. And it's only a, a very good piece of detective work by a couple of Italian scholars have been able to recognize and reinstate the evidence for um, some of these pictures. Sad, I think, because they, they would have been very informative. Did you come across any technologies that would have existed in the period that would indicate some ability to and it's an anachronistic term, but the concept is still there, uh, refrigerate items. Uh, no. Okay. In this century, what was the main material materials that were used to build these, these buildings? Uh, they were built in a mixture of concrete, faced with, often with brick, is what you see at Austin today, or with something called reticulate, which is small pieces of um, stone set in a, a diamond pattern. And then internally, um, the common structure is to have a double height concrete vault with a wooden floor at the halfway level. So ground floor, first floor is halfway up the concrete vault, and then above that, the floors and the sign of the ceilings are, are wooden, but the walls continue to be concrete. Okay. All the materials you described there, would those have been sourced domestically, or is there a strong reason to believe that some of those uh, were imported from outside the region, and if, if so, do you know where from? The materials come from they're the same materials that most of the structures of Rome in that period are built on. The brick facing is produced further at the Tiber, up to about 60 kilometers north of Rome. The uh, materials, the porcelana, which is what gives Roman concrete its strength, the sort of sandy element of the mortar comes from around Rome and down towards Austria. Um, so does the the stone, which is, which is also all volcanic. And then the lime probably either comes down the Tiber 
from the mountains, the limestone mountains behind them, or it comes by sea uh, from where the limestone meets the sea about 60 kilometers south of, of Austria. So in a sense, they are very local, and that is absolutely normal in the, in the ancient world. You, for bulk um, construction materials, you go as close as you can just because of the cost of transport. Is anything known about the people that built the apartments? Well, we, we know enough, quite a lot about the builders in Austria, whether they built the apartments or not, we can't say. The, um, builders were organized into a collegium, which is a sort of association. It's not exactly like um, a medieval build. It's more a social um, thing, but also I think helps to keep people like um, trades together. And the world Austria, we have an inscription from the very end of the second century, from 198 CE, which lists all the names of the over 300 builders who were there. And these are probably not going to be the, the, the ordinary laborers, but these are going to be people with a certain amount of money. Um, because you have to pay to join the guild and be a member of it. And we can tell from some of their names that um, they were, that most of them are freed slaves, which would be normal. And they are freed slaves of important Austrian families. There are people whose uh, um, names suggest they come from um, elsewhere around in small and small towns around Rome. There are people who come perhaps from the Eastern Empire. Somebody has given the name Orient, which means of the East. And somebody else seems to come from Ptolemaeus in, um, in Egypt. So it's what you would expect in a harbour town. There were all these people coming and going. They had to find work. Some of them settled down. Um, some of them um, were clearly trained by other builders as slaves, then they were free, then they become uh, builders in their own right. So it's it's an interesting world and we do actually know quite a bit about them because we find sometimes their names in other contexts. So one person, we know he celebrated his birthday on the 27th of January with a, a religious group. So it, it's, it's really quite an interesting area to work with. One of the things that, uh, one of the other things that I work very much on is, is the building industry. I want to clarify, where was this list located? It was located, it was found in the headquarters of the Guild of Builders, or the Association of Builders in Austria, very close to the Forum. And indeed, it's still there. Okay. And there are many other inscriptions relating to individual members. Okay. Is there anything else, Janet, that you want to get across in this episode that I haven't asked or hasn't been emphasized uh, as much as you'd like it to be in, as it pertains to this topic today before we wrap up the chat? I think one of the things I would point out is that it's very easy to talk about 
um, apartment buildings and apartment, Roman apartments. But what you see at Ostia is a real variety that reflects what is probably the wide social spread, social economic spread of the people who live there. And we still can't really easily identify where the people who could only afford a bed for the night actually live. I think that little um, hostel pensione in the, in the house of Dynamic is as close as you get. In, on the other end of the scale, one of the complex, there's a whole complex of apartment buildings called um, the garden houses, which has some commercial shops sort of things, but it's actually like a, um, I mean, um, a gated um, condominium with a whole series of individual, really large, well-decorated, very um, well-structured medianum apartments, which were clearly for people who had a great deal of money. And that must have been a speculative development because it has, um, on the ground floor, there were 17 different apartments and they clearly had at least two small stories above them. So there's, a, there's this whole range of people who have to imagine all sorts of, of people who needed accommodation, people waiting for their ships, people coming off ships, um, sailors, military people arriving to move up to Rome or waiting for the emperor to come and sail from Austria, uh, as well as all the people um, connected with the world of commerce serving the, the largest city in the, in the Western world at the time. Sounds like it was a bustling port community at one point in time. Absolutely. I think that's what you've got to think of. And therefore, very diverse. Yeah. Okay. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Janet. You really know your stuff. Thank you for coming on the show today. You're welcome. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Delane authored articles in, A Companion to Roman Italy and Contested Spaces, Houses and Temples in Roman Antiquity and the New Testament. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Janet and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.